Welcome to the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign, sharing real-life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health. We will also reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and others who have been through extreme adversity. All right, guys, so welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Perfect Podcast, where each week I'm joined by some of the world's most renowned faces across the entertainment industry, on the sports field, and corporate leaders sharing their own truths and their personal journeys. This is the incredible story of Zion Clark, whose life has taken everything away from the first day. Born without legs due to choral regression syndrome and abandoned by his mother at birth, he spends his first 16 years between one house of trust until he discovers the wrestling and love of a new mother. He is a Guinness World Record holder, has featured on Ellen, CNN, Fox News, ESPN, and features in the Netflix documentary Zion, scoring two sports Emmys and nominated for short film Grand Jury Prize at the Sundown Film Festival. He became the first American athlete to compete in both the Olympic wrestling and Paralympic wheelchair racing games in Tokyo. And when he isn't qualifying or training, he stays busy as a motivational speaker. The moral of Zion's inspirational story is that things don't always go smoothly in life, but in order to succeed, you must adapt to your individual circumstances. Priding himself in hard work, Zion offers that there are no excuses or shortcuts. It's about faith, passion, and perseverance. And I love that. So first of all, welcome to the show, Zion. Thank you, man. It's always a pleasure to be on and get to share, you know, the experience of being me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you know what? I've been following you for quite some time, and uh, I was watching, actually... Um, podcast you did the other day well you didn't do it the other day you did it a while and uh i come to la each year and i know most of the boys at goals and i noticed you was with madder around the venice area training i'm like i know that dude where do i know him from and i'm like the fitness industry around venice around gold's gym is just so small and the community so have you you've known madder for quite some time oh yeah no so no it's funny so the day that I was on the Ellen show, well, let me back, let me back up the week, two weeks before I was on the Ellen show, Mata hit me up on Instagram hmm. and I kind of ignored him because like, you know, I was still like kind of new to this whole fame thing. And I was just kind of, I was still in college. So I was just really focusing on schoolwork and trying to keep social media out of it and just, you know, focus on the degree and my wrestling. Yeah. Um, and fun fact, I didn't even actually finish school to start, to start with. <laughs> Um, due to all the opportunity and success I have now, wouldn't be I wouldn't have the opportunity if I would have stayed. Um, but you know, I'm on. I get to the Ellen show I'm with my mom backstage, and you know, we're in one of the most decorated dressing rooms ever. They 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 stuck me in the number one dressing room and put all the other like A list celebrities in the other ones, which was absolutely <laughs> to me because I was like, I'm just nobody. I'm just this kid from Ohio. You know what I mean? Yep. And, uh, you know, I get the word that Aquaman, Jason Momoa is roaming around. So I was like, first things first, you know, like brain instantly goes into, okay, where's Aquaman? (laughs) (laughs) So like I asked her manager, I was like, can you find them for me? Like, please. And I'm like sticking my head out in the hallway, walking up and down the hallway. Next thing you know, they're like, hey, hey, we found him. Come, come with me. So we're going to this corner and Jason comes out, this comes out the door, followed by Mata. And before, like, the crazy thing is, like, yeah, it was awesome seeing Jason and meeting Jason. But before we even got to that, I looked at Mata and I was like, he's like, no, he's like, no way. It's a big, it's Big Z. And I'm thinking, like, I've I've seen you before. Like, like, your face looks so familiar. And I'm thinking, like, I'm 2,000 miles away from my house. So 
why do I recognize you? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, next thing you know, he put up his Instagram and our messages. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, you got to be absolutely kidding me. And it was like, dude, it was like destiny. Like, yeah. what, are the, what are the chances that he's there with Jason and I'm backstage too at the same time with no one, either of us knowing that we're going to be there at all. Like we had just found out about each other like a couple weeks prior, you know, and next thing you know, his mom is in from, Mato's mom was in from, uh, I think Egypt and uh, my mom was in from Ohio. Dude, it was just like, it just so happened to be like both our mothers there, we're both there. So our families just came together had this giant meal and next thing you know uh we're talking about real deal and they're like dude you would be perfect we'd love you to be part of this team and help run the team and help really make this a big thing and I was like yeah <laughs> and you know like sometimes it was like the universe is just like pointing like just like like giant big neon signs do this you need to do this well, one of the things that you mentioned there when you were talking about faith, I will tell you something. I don't believe in coincidences no more. Serendipitous meetings, you were placed there, he was placed there, and and look, the rest is history. And it's, uh, yeah, when I saw him, I'm like, I'm going, I know that face. Where do I know that face? And then because you were training on Venice Beach, <laughs> I'm like, such a small world. You must, yeah, go to, but do you go there yourself? Do you go to Gold's Gym? Do you ever train there? Um, no, I actually train at the arena um, in San Diego and in Team Body Shop up in Los Angeles. Uh, they're both professional high-level UFC Bellator gyms with some of the uh, most renowned fighters you probably even know yourself. Uh, mm. Train day in, day out, like Tyrone Woodley, AJ McKee, and there's guys that go in the arena. It's just, dude, finding masterclass fighters is already a hard part in itself. Mm. Finding ones willing to actually train with you and respect what you do is a whole nother thing. And a lot of these guys, like, yeah, they'll let you train, train with them for that first time. But if you're not really putting in that hard work, not showing heart or effort, they're not going to work with you. So, yeah. like, even with me, if you want to work with me and you want to train with me, you have to earn my respect. You have to be able to show that you can run with the best of us. Yeah. And it's the same thing with them when I go into a different gym. Like, just the other day, I worked with former Olympian Tony Jeffries. He's one of the most decorated, decorated Olympic boxers ever uh, from the UK. And... Uh, this man, I, I was working with him and he was pushing me, you know? And I think he was really testing like what I can do, what are my limits? And I kept showing him like, test me as much as you want. Like, I don't care if I drop or if my arms go numb or if I can't feel my own body, I'm gonna keep going. Yeah. And I, I wanna be up, I wanna be in that upper echelon of fires. I wanna be an A-list fighter. I wanna be the world's baddest dude. And at the end of the thing, he gave me one of his gloves, which I found out are like some really crazy expensive gloves. And um, he was, he just came up to me. He was like, you truly earned these. Whoa. And so that coming from an Olympian really means a lot for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it yeah. means a lot to me because that shows that, okay, they really acknowledged that I'm putting in work. So now they acknowledged it. It's time to go even further. Man, I could talk all day about the gym, but it is a great segue to talk about like straight through to, obviously, like I said, I've been watching your stuff for some time and you literally radiate this effortless zest for life. But Prior to that, the first 16 years of your life, you've said and spoke openly about them being the hardest times through growing up in the hood, foster care, abuse and things. I'd love to for you to share, if you didn't mind, just with our audience, what it's truly like. Um, I know many interviews you've opened up about that past. So can you take us from the beginning um, and talk about the syndrome that you've got and how you've, you've, you've worked through that first 16 years of your life? 
So sorry, I, I drink a lot of water really fast. So if I, sorry, <laughs> right. my, my bad. But um, so when it comes to my life, man, you know, I started out being born with regression syndrome. That was due to my birth mother being on practically every party drug you can think of. Um, so I was your in your most literal sense, what you call a crack baby, and um, you know that made life really hard at first. You know, I was I was born addicted to coke. I was born addicted to heroin. I was born addicted to meth and all like all the drugs you could think of, they were in my system. And so that's, that's starting off with that, the six, the mortality rate uh, becomes, I, th I think the mortality rate is low, lower. So there's like a lower chance of me surviving. And um, I shouldn't, the doctors gave me a chance and I survived and I ended up being put in my first home. And this lady, she was very wonderful, very loving, very respectful and treated me well, taught me to be a drummer, which I'm, I don't know if you've seen or not, uh, some of my videos, it's all thanks to that lady. Um, just a lot of things were instilled into me just at an early age. And then after the first three years of my life, I, I, all of that got taken away from me. Who I thought was my mother, you know, as a, from birth, the first person you, you see, you're gonna look at them as like your parent figure. And I got ripped from this lady and after that, I was taken to New York where I'm um, off papers, off the books, was taken to New York and was in this giant um, uh, big uh, FBI case where they raided the house and found me locked in the basement in this dungeon type situation where all the other kids were getting abused and molested. And it just, just that was this thing about it. that was just the first four years, four or five years of my life. And um, and that's already like so much for someone to deal with as a kid or even just a grown adult. Uh, just like the thing about it, imagine if like you were just locked in, locked in like a dungeon for weeks on end with just little food, little water. And that's, that's how you live. And so like, that's what I went through for a few years. And after that, you know, I got taken out of there, put back into the foster care system. And, you know, when that happened, I think things are going to get better, but no, they don't. I just get, keep getting moved around to these families where they would just collect a check uh, from the government because they had me and, and that's all they cared about. Uh, I wouldn't get new clothes on my back. I wouldn't get full meals. I'd have to eat cereal for dinner with no milk, like just like stupid things that just add up to like a lot. And as I went through, as I went through those years, you know, I was able to discover wrestling and find a little out, find a bit of an outlet to channel all my emotions and my anger and depression and everything just for the fact of, for the reasons, you know, um, not having a family, not having a mother, not having a father, not really knowing who cares about you at all. And uh, with wrestling and everything, I was able to find like that group of people where no matter how things, bad things were at home, I could always look forward to going to school and going to practice because you know the longer I could stay away from home the more I could like be myself yeah and wow. and then like it gets even better though <laughs> so, <laughs> so like you know I had to wear these prosthetics and some of these families use them as a punishment and they would cut into my sides leave gashes bruises welts like I would develop like holes in my sides just um, from the constant friction and pressure of wearing these things. And I just hated it completely. And they knew that I hated it. And it was just used as a punishment. I have to wear them to school. And when I got back from school, I had to wear them all night up until I went to bed. So I'd be wearing them from like six in the morning to eight o'clock at night 
with no break and getting out of them. I couldn't get on my hands all day. And that just did not feel normal to me. It just wasn't, I didn't feel human. I felt like I was trying, so they were trying to force me to be something that I completely wasn't. And so finally, when I got to high school, I got the option of wearing them and not wearing them. And I was like, you know what? These things are going in the garbage <laughs> forever. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just kind of started to make decisions for myself. And by the time I was 14, 15, I still wasn't in a good family situation. So I started looking to the streets and hanging out with my friends that I made out in the streets. You know, some of these guys are still my closest friends today. You know, they might not be the best and most desirable people. And a lot of people judge me for that. But to me, those are my boys. Those are my brothers. Those are those, those are the people that when I had absolutely nobody, like those guys, they would steal for me. They would steal me food. They would make sure I had like clothes on my back. They would really make sure that like I'm straight and check on me all the time. And yeah, they do with their own issues and with the poverty situation where I'm from, it, it was very hard, but you know, even in the darkest times you can find good people. And that's what I really leaned on for a while. I leaned on the people around me in my neighborhood and I leaned on my wrestling, like my wrestling family. And that's what really got me through it until my mom came along and, you know, picked me up and took me in. And that story, man, when she did that, uh, the, the foster care system was actually running out of options, not even running out. They had run out of all the options for me. And they just said, like, this is a bad kid. Do you want to take him? Because if you don't take him, we're sending him to a group home. And if he can't get into a group home, he's just going to be homeless. Like, that's pretty much what it was. And uh, so I, I really was running out of, like, having somewhere to go. Even if I didn't have a family, I wasn't even going to have a roof over my head. And... Um, my mom took me in and showed me kindness and love and respect and let me work on, let me do things that I like to do. She would let me actually go out and hang out with my friends. And you know what? The more I actually had, the more freedom I had gotten, the more I felt like I was being like responsible. Mm -hmm. you know, because like I do good work, she lets me go out. Or if like I'm chilling and I ask to go out, as long as she knows where I'm at, I can go out. And then that's what, like, I never got that. I never even got the chance to like show that I could be responsible. It was just, no, you can't do this. You're you're already a bad kid. You might get in trouble. So just just for the fact that you might get in trouble, you're not allowed to do anything. You know what I mean? That that's what I lived with. And my mom completely changed that whole outlook. And by the time I was adopted, she like grades had went up. Wrestling, the skill in wrestling had to completely leveled up. I ended up becoming a four-time state placer, two-time state track champion, national champion, junior national champion. It was just after getting that family stability and that stable like foundation in my life, I was able to just focus, you know, and you think about it, like when, like when you can't focus, like if, if you weren't able to focus, you wouldn't be able to set up such a nice podcast where you can interview the best people around the best entrepreneurs, athletes, authors, like whatever it is, you wouldn't be able to do that if there's no focus and no stability. Mm. And I, I didn't have that. Once I had that, there was no telling what I could do. And as and as proof of now with what I'm currently doing, um, it just shows that with a stable background or just a stable foundation, the only way you can go is up because you're standing on the foundation. Man, I'm just blown away. Like, firstly, thank you for sharing that story and going so deep. And I think with attesting to the Imperfectly Perfect campaign, it really is about having these conversations, but then going past the surface level. So one thing I, I want you to touch on, if you don't mind, is... Give us a clear understanding what misconception there is about this judgment thing when it comes to, like you said, 
some of your boys from back when you openly speak about living in the ghetto and that kind of area. What is the misconception that people do make judgment when, like you said there, there is poverty. We don't know what's going on in their lives. So without judgment or casting a stone, how can we? And where do you think from your own personal take is society going wrong with areas like that? Oh, don't get me started. (laughs) Where first off, where I think society is going wrong is how just it's people make it seem like the normal that just because a black man is from the hood that they're forever a gangster, they're forever a thug, they're forever a criminal. Um, you know, life is already hard, hard enough with the poverty situation, with struggling families, with people trying to just make sure their kids eat. Some people will go days, weeks without food and make sure their kids are able to eat. That shouldn't be like that. And then with those type of, with those type of situations, living situations, sometimes there's no other options than to turn to crime or turn to drugs or turn to anything. And um, a lot of people would think that like, oh, well, this dude talk about being in the ghetto, all that, and he don't act like it. He keeps all, he keeps all these white people around him. And, and that, that's like, to me, that's just BS. Because like, I know who my family is. I know who my friends are. And just because you, you might see me with person of this skin color, that skin color, this race or that race does not mean I like one certain race. I like people if you can vibe with me, no matter what you look like. If you're able to be on that same level of energy, have the same, not the same vision, but the same type of work ethic, I'm a mess with you and I I will be your friend. I will be your acquaintance. And people don't understand that. Now, and if you ain't doing that, like simple as that I'm not going to work with you I'm not going to keep myself around you I keep myself around people who I want to be like and people who have the same type of mindset and with more people can start thinking like that and just seeing that like all right this person might be doing this but that might be the only support system that they have they they'll they'll be more understanding they will understand and once they understand that'll give them the opportunity to start helping a lot of people don't help because they don't understand. A lot of people don't take action because they don't really understand the full spectrum of what's going on. Yeah, I love that. And I love the outlook that you've got with that because I think we would live in such a better society in general if more people thought like that. Stop looking at an external thing and rather that frequency thing. Like we're all one if we if we start to pay attention and we actually, well, I think it's, it's that coming sitting within yourself first and realizing who you are and what you're about and not listening to all the noise and the judgment, what everyone else casts on other people. But one thing, um, your story opens so many questions up, but one thing is learning to live and accept certain things for what they are in life. Has it, or does it give you a sense of confidence in going out into the world and owning who you are and trying to make the most out of every opportunity that is now being presented to you? Oh, without a doubt. Um, with the, I, hand, I handle things in a very different way than I feel like most people do. Mm. Um, when I fail or when I don't close a deal or I mess up a connection, which, you know, I'm human, those things do happen. I'm not perfect. I'm not the guy that just makes every connection and does everything. You know, I make mistakes. And people, a lot of people, they fold and they just kind of give up and they just, you know, they make excuses. And what really keeps me going is the fact that why, why, why do I need to 
why do I need to explain to myself why I didn't do something when I just, when I know for, for a fact why I didn't do it, you know, like, and people don't, people need to really start, people really need to start wrapping their heads around or need to start normalizing just being themselves, letting the world, whatever the world throws at you, just taking it with confidence, taking it with strength. You know, some days might be harder than others. Some days might be brutal. But the thing about us being human, the thing about the human experience is that we are resilient and we are able to get back up. Well, that leads me straight into a question that I ask everyone that comes on the Imperfectly Perfect campaign. And it's, you seem so confident within yourself. And I've heard on the interviews before that you've done that you've, you've generally always had this air of confidence about you, not arrogance, but confidence, like you can go out and get anything. So for anyone listening out there that's struggling, may have had a similar path, journey, background, or for anyone struggling with mental health, what would you say does being imperfectly perfect mean to you? Being imperfect is the most pure form of perfection because it's what makes you special. You know, not two, not once, not two people are alike on this planet, even twins. Like if you're an identical twin, there's still discrepancies between two. It might not be physically, but emotionally, mentally, mentally, psychologically, it's like you're different. And people need to really start accepting that, okay, I'm different. I'm not like this person. My amount of success should not be compared to the next person's amount of success. My way of thinking shouldn't be this person's way of thinking. My way of thinking might not be the best, but I can level it up to what works best for myself. And with me, you know, I was, I did struggle for a while um, growing up, but I always found hope and I always found uh, myself wanting more. You know, I, I always wanted more. I wanted a family. I wanted to be a good wrestler ever since I was a kid. You know, and just that want, like, and that want is great, but it's still not enough. You got to go execute. You got to go, you really got to go work hard. And a lot of people, they say what they want to do. They say they're going to do this. They say this, they say that. And that's all well and good, but it's not going to happen if you don't take the physical course of action to make it happen. And that's why when some people do, some people actually do think I'm kind of arrogant or um, and stuff like that, cocky, whatever you want to say it. But here's the thing about me. If I say I'm going to go do something, I will show you my best attempt. And if I fail, I'm going to keep trying again. And if I do it, I'm going to just do it. And I'm not going to say a single thing afterwards. I just initially tell you so you know what's coming. <laughs> Drip feed people. It's, you know what, though? It's, I have so much respect for that because I don't think there's an air of arrogance at all. I think it comes to even when I started something, I'm from Yorkshire back in the UK, like a, a working class place. And it's kind of like, there's a lot of talkers in this world. There's yeah. not a lot of walkers. And it, it's just like, walk the walk and implement. If you say you're going to do something, whether you fail or whether you try, like, because you don't want to look back and regret. But I suppose you could have, with everything against you from foster systems, growing up with along your journey and your story, what you've just said, I suppose you could have turned to frustration, bitterness. So if there is anyone who's in similar circumstances, what would you say or what advice would you like to create almost like a legacy and let people know coming after you that how you got your mental stability or, or your outlook on life and turned it around? Yeah. Uh, can you say that one, that last part one more time? You almost kind of <laughs> broke up just a little bit. 
Yeah. So what would you like to say to anybody that may obviously have a similar path or journey in the foster system or where they're from and, and don't see an out game? What advice could you give them in, in changing that perspective on, on the outlook? Okay. Okay. So what I would tell them is that, you know, pain and suffering is only temporary. You can be in pain. You can suffer as long as you allow yourself to. And um, I found that out after a while, even when I was still in foster care in high school, once I became like a sophomore, I had just gotten this thing about myself where I was like, whether I get a family or not, I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to live life and try to make it the best way I can. I'm not going to let the actions of somebody else or my past actions affect my future. You just have to keep your head up and don't hope for, don't hope for a better future, but actively make yourself a better future. And it might take weeks, it might take months, it might take years. For me, it took over 17 years. Yeah. Uh, but it's still, it's still a possible thing. And, and last couple of questions. Um, I just want to ask you, because you've, you, you've spoken about the, the pre, the story there, and you've gone really deep for us, which, again, I'm very grateful for. But then suddenly to be thrust into a Netflix documentary, um, Guinness World Records, ESPN, Ellen Show, suddenly Mada, <laughs> Jason Momoa. I mean, everything's now coming towards you, opportunities. So again, anybody that's had to work on themselves a lot and gone through that, I can only attest from my story, but there's, there's still a lot of work you need to do on yourself because then you start seeing other sides of things. People wanting to know you for maybe what they can do, what you can do for them. And there's all this different ball game. So how have you adapted and looked at that different perspective? Oh, so with that, you know, the way it's a mixture of how my mom raised me up with just that level of like uh, down southern in the southern United States called like southern respect, southern hospitality. So you always come at somebody. Yes, ma'am. No, no, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. Uh, First off, always respectful, always cordial, always on time. You know, I I try to I, I started being very punctual about what I was doing. And um, and that all came from like the lessons I learned from wrestling and uh, my mom and just everything, you know, um, because the way that my coach says it, he was always like an uncoachable kid is an unemployable adult. And I, that really hit home. I mean, I was I was always the kid to listen and I was always the kid to keep my mouth shut. I like if my track record shows that probably in the last five years, I've done more talking than I've done my entire life. <laughs> in just five years. Yeah. I'm 24. And, um, that, and that speaks a lot of volume to me because I used to just be the kid that would just stay quiet. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't really try to speak out. I would just listen or, and retain information constantly. And then when it, when it came time to like start showing the type of skills that I know, the type of experiences that I know, not saying that I was waiting for that time to shine, but just out as I'm out in the world after like being an adult uh, on my own for the first time, there's all those lessons started to play into just my everyday life when it came to whether I was wrestling or just talking to somebody in the street or working a job. I used to lay brick for six hours a day on top of going to school. You know, um, it, it was like I just gotten I got used to working hard constantly. Once you, once you get accustomed to it and you really start applying yourself, no matter what it is you do, what, no matter what it, your talent is, or if you're a mother or a father, single parent, 
um, uh, it doesn't it doesn't matter a full family it if you will just start applying yourself on a consistent basis it becomes second nature and I feel like people really started to recognize that for the fact that I, I, I just would just keep doing stuff I just wouldn't stop I would keep going and going and going and going now I'm at a point where I wake up at like 5 a.m every day and I start my day yeah as much done as I possibly can <laughs> I think people underestimate how hard it is actually laying a break. Um, for 12 to 14 months when I was building this campaign, trying to do everything single-handedly, I jumped back in construction as a laborer, 12 hours a day, six days a week. People underestimate, but it gives you clarity and time to think, doesn't it? It's, it does. It sucks. Literally, for three months of that, mate, I was standing, hosing a bloody wall with silica dust. I was there with... And I was like, I'm in my 30s and I'm bloody standing hoes in a wall. But it gave me time to think about how I needed to network and, and market and all this kind of stuff. Because I had no experience prior. And you talked yeah. about laptop before. It's like when you've got that stability, I started with my laptop and garage band. And everyone's like, how did you get these people? And I'm like, I just owned who I was. I just led by who I was. But there was no airs and graces about me. I'm like, I was, I was laying brick for 12 hours a day, six days a week. Knackered. <laughs> exactly. People don't understand that. People always see the finished product. Oh, they, don't, they don't see the, with me, they don't see the kid that has broken his fingers, broken his arm, broken his hand. They don't, they don't see stuff like that. Uh, they don't see the struggle of having your nose broken um, and and you can't just stop fighting because then you lose and you just got to keep going with like blood all in your mouth and your eyes teared up and you can't see like you like people don't understand the type of struggle it is to be a, a like a top tier athlete a top tier martial artist at that there's broken bones there's blood there's sweat there's days where you are just draining you still got to get up anyways there's days where you might be the top dog and you get your butt kicked you know like people don't people don't see that type of stuff yeah but when, when it's go time, that's when all your preparation, all your failures, all your learning moments come into one moment and you just go out there and show who you are. And then it makes more sense, don't you think, when they actually say, like those people who are truly successful in life, it goes, there really is the only 1% of per people that do make it because they're willing to go through that and not stop. And like you say, the behind the scenes stuff, people don't see, they see the external, the finished project. But I come, I'll come to my last question because I, I just want to know now, you, you've achieved so much, you've gone through so much, you've got such a zest for life like you come across with and this confidence that you can take on the world. What is the vision now? What, what's the legacy you want to create or leave behind? Because you do a lot of speaking to kids. So, um, Yeah, I mean, I speak to kids. That's, my, that's one of my main focuses, but I also speak to almost any anywhere that wants me and anywhere that needs to hear my message um but i want to be known as one of the i want to be known as the level of tony robbins to say the least you know you can't get much bigger than tony robbins <laughs> i want to be bigger than tony robbins yeah you know what i mean i want to be that premier speaker i want to be able to sell out arenas i want to be known as an, as one of the most successful entrepreneurs on the planet i want to be known as one of the world's best athletes in the last history in the history of our country I want to be known as one of the greatest of all time you know people say that you're the goat this and that and I look and I tell them every time no I'm not I'm not when like when I when I am and when I become something like that you'll know but it's not the time is it not right now like right now people are just seeing the progress they're seeing the work 
like, yeah, I'm starting to get some attention, but it's nowhere near where it could be. Well, you even said it earlier, you're saying, um, I can't remember the actual numbers, but you was like, it's taken me, I think you said like 17 years over in all. And that's one of the things that people don't see, do they? They see like, like this jump from here to there really quick because of people like yourself, public figures, influential people coming on board. But behind the scenes, they didn't see that 12 hours a day, six days a week, staying up till 1 a.m. in the morning, trying to all that. And like of hours that you do training and prepping and qualifying. And then it's, <laughs> mate, I take my heart to you because anybody that can literally almost have a regimented process to get where they want, that mindset. And like you say, I, I don't see, what you mentioned it before, but some people may see arrogance, this, that, and it's motivation and it's resilience and it's drive to know what you want. And at the end of the day, people are going to judge regardless, but it's on them. It's not on you. You know who you are. You know the people that are around you. So um, I think it's amazing. Where, where can people find out more information about you? Obviously, you've done the Netflix documentary. Tell us more. Oh, so um, if you just go to my Instagram, it's big underscore Z underscore 2020. Or if you just type in my name, Zion Clark, you can find me just as easily um, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, TikTok. Um, just type in my name and you will find me. And um, if you click the link in my bio on my Instagram, it'll point you to my merchandise store, the link for my new uh, released book, um, Zion Unmatched. Um, it'll, it'll, it just practically tells you everything you want to know, how to contact me, how to get a hold of me if you want me to speak anywhere. Uh, I got a good little system going on right now. Even a book. I'm, I'm just starting to look at that now and I'm like, um, I might need a ghostwriter because I, I, I haven't got the patience to sit down and write. So I'm, Oh, I'm I, I had a writer with me too. Trust me. There's, there's no way that I'd be able to sit down and write a book. It took over a year just to get the first, um, the first book of three that I'm writing right now done. Yeah, it, it, it's a process. It's so hard. Everything's so hard. But if you're willing to put in that effort, you'll get there. Um, work and take the time, man. It's it's completely worth it. I have one of the I have one of the top selling books in the country right now, and I feel absolutely honored. I just recently uh, got put in, I think, about 300 targets across the whole United States, uh, which is a big step up. Uh, we just went to a target last two nights ago and they had me up on their big screen in the book section and you know just your average everyday store is just it's a good feeling well we need to get you more in australia when international flights finally open <laughs> i would love to i was i was hoping um with this book our main plan is once the world opens back up for me to tour to uh, different countries and uh speak and shows and appearances everything oh definitely mate well First step in Perfectly Perfect campaign, we're based in Australia, the UK, now moving to the US. So if we can, we can help along that journey. But I just want to say on behalf of the campaign, on behalf of me, behalf of everybody that you've touched the lives of, mate, with your story, I think it's absolutely inspirational. Um, big thank you, mate. Really. No problem. Always, always a pleasure, man. <laughs> well, I'm going to put all the links up, guys. So make sure to head to um, Zion's links as soon as they go out. Um, until next time, guys, what I always like to reiterate is having the hard conversations and stop and think about going past those surface levels because it's the surface levels when you dig deep that saves lives. Until next time, guys, make sure you go to every major podcast platform, subscribe, like, and share. 
To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.